Hi, hello, hola. My name is Diego Gonzalez. I'm from Chile. We arrived to Australia with my family July 2021, last year, with Linda, my wife, and my oldest son, Ezra. And in September last year, the Lord added to our little clan, baby Levi. And we've been coming to Eastgate since, I think, February, I think, maybe, ends of February. Um, and we've been blessed by finding a church that believes in the authority and the need of Scripture. We like that they have Bible in their name. We enjoy your hymns. We like to sing with you. So you've been a blessing for us. Um, it's a blessing for me to see known faces because they, they call me down. Um, so thank you because I also know that you've been praying for, for me and for this, this moment and this time that I'll, I'll be sharing God's word with you. For those who don't know me and don't know us, well, you're missing out. So reach and we can fix that. Um, today I've been blessed with the opportunity to share, to share with you God's word. And I'm, I'm very nervous. I'm very, um, I'm, I'm freaking out. I'm, I'm not afraid of you. <laughs> it's not against you. I, I always do. So I, that's why I always like pulpits, solid pulpits, because you can't see me shaking underneath. So that's, that's good. We'll be looking at God's Word today in the letter of Colossians. We're going to be, and I would like if we could reread together the, the portion that Alon read for us before. It's Colossians chapter 3. Verses 12 to 17. I'm using the ESV, the standard, the English standard version. But if you could stand up and read it with me. On the count of three, one, two, three. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all this, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for our Lord Jesus. For your spirit dwelling in us. We pray that your word, your, your word will be engraved in our hearts, that the name of our Lord will be lifted up. We pray that your spirit will convince us, will confront us, and will comfort us as we gaze upon the beauty of your commandments. Be your name magnified, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I have titled today's sermon, What Are You Wearing Today? 
uh, a little bit of a, an introduction so we can have a bit of context and, and to get to know a little bit more about what's going on in this, in this letter. The church in Colossae, I hope that I pronounced that right. I've been asking around. Colossae, Colossia. We say Colossenses, Colossas. So it's easier. The Argentinians know what I'm talking about. The church in Colossae, planted by Epaphras, after hearing the Apostle Paul during his ministry of three years in Ephesus, it was set up in a major, in a city of major development, both economic and social. The city of Colossae had benefited from many natural resources um, that had made, had made it a thriving city and that attracted a diverse crowd of people from various backgrounds and locations. And this place, where there's also a large Jewish community. So a city rich, full of culture, and people from everywhere, Jews and Gentiles alike. It is to this church then that Paul writes this letter to encourage them to stand firm in the call of the Lord Jesus and not give into the pressures of paganism that were operating in the city or to the Judaizing legalism. Greek philosophers were formidable enemies which hunted the spiritual growth and development of the church. Gnosticism ceaselessly attacked and claimed the need for an external and experimental revelation in order to understand the message of the scriptures. And the Judaizers threatened the believers with all tricks and a call to circumcision according to the Old Testament. A mixture we took elements of the world to integrate them in the gospel message and sought to infiltrate the church. This is, the, this is what's going on. This is why Paul writes this letter. Thus, as we can see, the church of Colossae, though having begun to become firmly rooted in the gospel, it was losing sight of its purpose. Their gaze was wandering. Therefore, Paul urges them to fix your eyes and on things above and not on things on earth. Verse, chapter 3, verse 2. And it is in that, in the particular story of Colossae, that we can find many things that we actually have in common with, with them. And as always, the word of God revelant to them in that time continues to be relevant for us today. This prison letter from Paul... It's full of references to the teachings of Jesus and the ideas and concepts which Paul wrote in other letters to the churches. And it is especially charged with doctrines which are the key to both the understanding of the gospel and the knowledge of God, with special mentions to the doctrines of the deity of Christ, the reconciliation and the election of God, as well as the forgiveness and the church, also uh, arguing against the heresies that sought to discredit the deity of Christ and the understanding of scriptures. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, a small portion that I would like to read before continuing, relevant to what I want to share with you today, Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. The biblical narrative indicates that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and so having created all living creatures and all living things, he created man. We are told in Genesis 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And it adds in verse 27, so God created man in his image. and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. As polemic as it is today, this statement nonetheless, it is the truth of God. We were created in his image. 
The issue comes with the fall. Men and women created in justice and righteousness spoil the image of God with their sin. The image of God was disfigured but not destroyed. Sin has placed us then in a position of fallenness, separated from the glory of God. We have become dead in our sin and completely corrupt in every faculty and every part of our soul and body. So the way that God deals with this issue is the way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The need for redemption, the need for regeneration, the need for redemption, the need for regeneration, the saving grace of God delivered to us through Jesus. His life, his death, his resurrection, assuring us our return to the glory of God, where those who have been saved will dwell forever. But this is a process in which we are trapped in. The golden chain of salvation leads this process in this way. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the gospel is not just the cross. But everything that involves the justification, regeneration, sanctification, and glorification of God's people. And this is the great equalizer. The gospel of Christ. Bringing people together. People from every tongue and nation. Look at verse 10 in Colossians 3. Sins has affected people from all places, gender, and age. But the gospel binds together what man wants to tear apart. Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. Once again, there's no Greek or Jew or circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, free or slave. But Christ is all and in all. It's the grace of God that we not only overcome the walls that man has erected, but totally destroy them. It is in the gospel where we can find the true unity. Think for a moment in Onesimus and Philemon, or Philemon. Onesimus was the slave that ran away from his patron, patron Philemon, both of them members of this congregation, a free man and a slave. So it is Paul that calls Philemon to see Onesimus as no longer as a bond servant, but more than a bond servant, as a beloved brother. That's in Philemon verse 16. No Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, free slave, Australian, Indians, Chileans or Argentinians. And this is important, and that's because of what we are now. Verse 12 of chapter 3 in Colossians. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Holy and beloved. That is our starting point. We go to God and ask him who we are. And this is what he says. You are my chosen. 
You are my holy ones. You are my beloved. And that's a beautiful declaration right there. And we need to remind ourselves of this truth every single day. Because you see the state of the world. You see that one of the biggest issues in society right now is that people do not know who they are. They look at themselves and search for answers. They stare at their hearts, hoping to find any sense of identity, any sense of meaning, any sense of purpose. But the Christian, the Christian is told where to look for answers. We are led by the Spirit of God to place our gaze upon our Lord and to place the question of who we are at His feet. And to listen with open ears and a renewed heart who He says we are. It is important to start there because it is what we are that will define what we are meant to do. It's our identity in Christ that will dictate our behavior. It is not our behavior who dictates who we are. It is the work of Christ in us. Since we are the chosen, holy and beloved of God, we need to understand that we have been separated from the world. We've been purchased by Him and for Him, so we belong to Him. So we are meant to live a life that does not contradict the purpose of his calling and ownership over our lives. So then Paul says to us, put on then. Put on as in to be dressed, to cover ourselves. This is how Paul starts this section where he will explain to us what God expects from us as a response to his redemptive work. This list is what will be the indistinguishable qualities of every Christian all around. This is how we'll be recognized. This will be what makes the difference. I'm a 90s kid. I, I was born in 1988. So yeah, I'm that old. You, may, you do the math. But I was raised in the 90s. And one of the things that um, were big during the 90s was something that got the, the name tag of urban tribes. I don't know if that was a concept that reached here, but urban tribes. It was a group of kids, teenagers, that share a common set of preference and they, will, they, they like to get together. And it was mostly associated with uh, music taste and, and looks. Uh, there were punks and and metalheads, skaters and rappers, goth and sporties, nerds and geeks. Yeah, there's some of you that are like, ah, oh, yeah. I won't confirm or deny that I used to belong to one of these. But the reality that was that pretty much every kid in the 90s actually belonged to one of these groups. Each one of them with a distinctive look, distinctive slang and attitude. And the idea was that you will look and act as your tribe dictates. And that just by the look, people could, let, could tell what you were and to which group you belong. If you see someone with um, a leather jacket and spikes, metal spikes, and a mohawk of, of color, like that's a punk. If you see someone with baggy pants and a skateboard, that's a skater. 
If you see someone with more baggy clothes and a boombox and a cab facing the, back, the wrong way, that's a rapper. You could tell what, what, what they were. And in a similar way, we are to look for those things that will adorn this new creation that God has made. That are the things that will serve as an accessory of this new man. And Paul lists these qualities in order for us not only to see them as good, because they are good, but not only that, but we actually have to wear them as distinctive marks of our profession of faith. And this is a very important issue. One of the first things that I had to do before starting my job was to get the right gear and the right clothes. We went to the shops looking for the high-vis shirt, the high-vis jumper, the work pants, the security steel cap, shoes. You're not allowed in the workplace if you're not using the right equipment. And once you have the right gear for the job, you need to read all the information. They, they make you go through all this induction about safety and protocols in the workplace. And you have to see all the videos. They sit you there in the lunchroom with a busted tablet, cracked screen, and they make you watch all the videos. And then you have to sign a document that assures that you have read and understood what you just read. Let's quickly look to another passage that, could add, that would add an aid to our understanding of today's passage. Ephesians chapter, 10, uh, chapter 2, verse 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. Paul encourages the church to consider the, blessing of, uh, the blessings of God through Jesus. And he says, for, he, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we walk in them. The word workmanship in the original Greek language is poema. And it's the root word for the word poem. Essentially what God, what, what God is telling us, through the Apostle Paul, is that we have been crafted by God. That we've been made by God, by His hand. We are His poem. We are His work. And He sent us to the world as His representatives to carry this poem wherever we go. That people may see the beauty of the workmanship of God in us. Each one of us, in the eyes of the Lord, a masterpiece. Something that you want to show. As if God were saying, look what I have done. You know when God did that too? In the beginning. When he finished his creation. When he was done after created all things. And he looked at them and he said... It is good. And in the same way, he looks at us now in Christ, and the same words can be heard. It is good. One of the great early church fathers was John Chrysostom, and he was a great scholar and preacher. 
Chrysostom made an interesting statement in one of his writings. He says, all the animals went into the ark, referring to Noah's ark. All the animals went into the ark and came out exactly the same. When they left at the end of the flood, they were exactly the same animals they were when they, they, they went in. A fox was a fox. A crow was a crow. And he even talks about a porcupine being a porcupine. But he says there is, was absolutely no change. They went in. They were not changed. They came out exactly the same. But as all who enter the ark of salvation in Christ, all who enter the ark of salvation in Christ, in the midst of the flood of God's judgment, are transformed. We go in one way, and we come out completely different, completely transformed. Sinners who enter the ark of Christ in one form are completely recreated in another form. So this is where we are now. Transformed lives, redeemed lives, life abandoned, total life. This list of things aren't optional. I mean, it's not a pick and choose list. Some time ago, I asked one of my mentors, it seems to me that I can have joy, but I'm not sure if I can have self-control. I can see that I'm being kind, but I don't know if I can have patience. Referring to the fruit of the Spirit, he said, this is not a shopping list. It's not like you went to the supermarket and that day they had joy but ran out of faithfulness. This is a, or you have it or you don't. And you need to examine and we need to examine our hearts and ask the Lord for direction to see what we need to get rid of. There's something occupying that, that place in our heart that we need to get rid of. That we need to put away, as Paul says uh, in, in verse 7 of chapter 3. And this, you two once walked, referring to the walks of the flesh, when you were living in them. And verse 9, 8 adds, but now you must put them all away. So we put away and replace. We get rid of and we restock. So these are the things that have to come to replace what we once had. This is the upgrade. This is the 2.0 version. Verse 12 then. Compassionate hearts. The first feature of the new man. This is actually a Hebrew word that refers literally to the internal parts of the body, heart, lungs, liver, kidneys, etc. The, the Jews believed that all the emotions were tied to our internal organs. They were very, um, most of the, his words were very referring to, like when they say, um, I'm nervous, I'm sick to my stomach. And I think you can relate. I'm stressed, my kidneys hurt. I'm, I'm, I'm old, so like I'm, I'm going through that. I don't, I don't know about you. I'm so angry that my head could explode. See, they, they used to, to refer that the, the birthplace of all emotions were the, the organs, the internal organs. And this word, compassionate hearts, refers to that. It is the belief that this feeling of mercy or, or sympathy will find its roots deep within us. So this compassionate heart 
what we'll do is to express a profound sense of compassion. Something that will lead us to care for others. So it's active care. It's not just a, a, a pat in the back care. This is actually, could be the hug, but more than that. This was very much needed in the ancient world, where sick people or, or, or old people or her people would just leave to face their fate and letting them ultimately to die. As Christians, we cannot be indifferent to suffering. But it should be an important concern to supply and care for the needs of others. Ultimately, the greatest example is our Lord Jesus. When we get a glimpse of his heart for us in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. Matthew 9, verse 36. It says, When he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they, hara- they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Kindness. Tied with compassion, this is a reference to the effect that the Spirit will have in someone's life. All those rough patches in ourselves now are softened. A person whose trademark is his tenderness, tenderness not his tough character or cruel demeanor. We had the opportunity to serve a a church in Chile, a small congregation, but one of the things that really struck me was that one of the first things I I got told before arriving to that church was, be cautious of this person. That was the first first advice that I received before before getting there. Be, Be careful with this person. He has a fame. He's known for being a tough person. And he was a trade, and he worked in construction. So I could understand a little bit of where all this toughness came from. Even his attempts to be sensitive will come out as clumsy. His jokes or funny comments never really well received. His tough character was his trademark. So much that even affected his marriage, his relationships. Even I was constantly facing his harsh comments and strong words. But as the weeks went by and his heart was getting constantly exposed to the gospel, we all could see and experience that the power of the kindness of God can have in someone's heart. We started to see in in him a softer way of speaking, a more relaxed behavior, tenderness. His wife returned to the congregation His daughter became part of the congregation. His relationship with the rest of his brothers and sisters reached a new level of closeness. His life is a great testimony of how the gospel can change us. Even when people have given up on them, God is faithful. Kindness cares as much for the self as it does for others. Another great example of this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Someone who got off his way to aid someone in need, not caring just for the moment, 
but providing all the necessary help to ensure that he would have a proper recovery. That's the example that we must follow. Humility. In the first century, and probably today as well, this, this quality has been deemed as negative. But this Christian virtue is what can cure us from that high self-esteem that poisons our relationships and prevents us from truly seeking and expressing the full array of our new self. Humility is the trademark that Jesus embodied perfectly. He says to us, again, Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Humility is the soil where the fear of the Lord will grow. And where there is the fear of the Lord, there is wisdom. And where there is wisdom, there is a deep dependence on God's provision. Fear of the Lord and pride don't grow in the same soil. If you want to see an increased development in your humility, you don't have to worry about not being proud. But what you have to esteem is the fear of the Lord above and before you. And this is not natural for for us. We're not able to produce this virtue in us by ourselves. It needs the powerful intervention of the grace of God. This is how we will go down to our needs and recognize that it is not in us and that we need Him. That it is not in us, but Him in us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. And I'm just referring to all these verses because I I want you to to see that this is not just a one one idea like a loose idea this is this is transpired this is it's bleeding through the whole gospel the whole message of the bible is tied with this philippians chapter 2 verse 12 therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence work out your own salvation With fear and trembling. God commands us to be occupied in this. With fear and trembling. With humility and dependency. Why? The next verse gives us the answer. For it is God who works in you. Both to will and to work. For his good pleasure. It starts with Him, it begins with Him, and we are kept in Him through Christ by the enabling grace that leads us to depend on Him, humbling ourselves, for that humility is the most esteem of the Christian virtues. Meekness. Today's world, this will be considered more of weakness in our character. But this virtue fulfills a very important aspect to strengthen our relationships. Because it will lead us to recognize the reality that we live in a fallen world with fallen emotions, 
with fallen ways to relate to one another. It will show us that we can also be willing to recognize our own sin and endure when facing and dealing with someone else's sin. And this can be only attained by the work of the Holy Spirit in ourselves, as stated in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. This meekness is a powerful tool that we are provided and equipped with. And it is in the Sermon of the Mount that we're encouraged to confront and exhort our brethren that are caught in sin, that had fallen into sin. But meekness will lead us to go first through our own hearts, and then when we have dealt with our own hearts, we will be able to serve, because this is a serve, it's a, it's a service that we do to our brothers, and compassion and humility. Meekness is also joined with self-control and the sense of dealing with other people's sinful manifestations against us. The example also found in the Sermon of the Mount, put in the other cheek, it is not necessarily a call to passively endure abuse, but actually to actively stay in control of our emotions and not seek harm for the other, defeating evil with good. Patience. Maybe the most evident lack in our character. Patience. I think if, if someone, if, if I would ask to raise your hands to who is having issues with their patience, maybe a large, I, I wouldn't say all of us. I, I don't want to say all of us. I hope that it's not all of us. But maybe most of us are having issues with this one. How many times we let people, circumstances, and Take over, and what spouts from us is nothing but desperation, insults, bitterness, or anger. The word patient conjures a vision of quiet suffering. Someone who is able to wait, not passively, but actively fixing his hope in the Lord. This is the same that James refers in his letter in chapter 1 when he says that... um, Difficulties, trouble, will produce in us patience. So patience is someone who is actually suffering, but hopingly waits, quietly waits. And in contrast, the impatient is the one that is suffering and wants everyone to know about it. Ah, it hurts. I don't feel right. I don't like it. I don't want it. Look at how we're presented with an example of of patiently waiting. Psalm 42. Psalm 42. A psalm of great comfort in times of need. I'll just read the first five verses, but you can read them after completely... I will, I will recommend you to read Psalm 42 or Psalm 43 because they're tied together. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah, as a deer pants for flowing, for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. 
12, they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I will go with the, with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. This is the psalmist being honest. This is the psalmist pouring himself in the presence of the Lord. This is himself speaking out. But verse 6, it changes. And instead of speaking out, he speaks in. He preaches to his heart and he says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil, in turmoil within me? Hope in God! For I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Actively waiting, patiently hoping. Clinging to the hope that everything works for our good and for His glory. Even our struggle and struggles with our relationships. Patience. Bearing with one another. Endure, resist. Even in the midst of persecution. Moving forward despite threats and indifference. Never looking to retaliate. Paul, in his letter to, to the Corinthian church, he says, And we labor, working with our own hands. When revile, we bless. When revile, we bless. We bless? We bless. We must. When persecuted, we give up. No. We endure. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure, said Paul. So how do we react in our hearts when facing these difficulties? These difficulties of bearing, bearing with one another. Because it is difficult. No one's saying that it's easy. You have to deal with your own self, and now you have to deal with someone else's? Yes, you do. It's not me saying it. It's God saying it. You argue with him, not with me. How do we face this? Forgiving. We forgive one another. It is an essential part of what we are. Benign and we are to constantly exercise forgiveness. Paul adds the phrase, As the Lord has forgiven you. So again, you're not arguing with Paul. You're not arguing with me. If you're arguing with someone, you're arguing with Jesus himself. We forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. Jesus is the highest model of forgiveness. Again, in the account of Matthew, we see again this attribute. And this attribute in action, chapter 18, verse 21 to 35. I'll just read the first verse. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often... I just like how Peter just goes and puts it there. 
Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And I can think, I can see Peter like rhetorical question, right? He, he already has an answer for that question, but he just wants to, to see if, if Jesus will say the same. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And I love this, this little conversation, these glimpses of, of the relationship between Peter and Jesus. And, and Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Who's keeping score? Because by the 50th time you have forgiven, you're going to lose count. I hope so. <laughs> Forgiving is essential for the message that we carry. Forgiveness, it is at the core of the gospel. And forgiveness as God forgives. Not how we do it. With Linda, we have tried, and I emphasize the, the word tried because we really tried, to when we're not, when, when dealing with difficulties, we have agreed that if we don't deal with it on the moment, on the spot, we have no right to bring that something up two weeks later. I say we try because we haven't mastered it yet, but, but we want to. We want to forgive and have the same reaction, the same action that God has with us. Can you imagine if God will shove it in, into your face every sin that you have committed and that you will commit? Because he knows what you're going to do tomorrow. And he knows what you're going to do next week and next month and next year. Can you imagine relating to the Almighty God in that way? And you know what? We can't imagine that. Because God has suppressed that reality. The Bible says that He has taken our sins as, as filthy rags and that He has thrown them away. And that He doesn't bring them back to His presence no more. No more. The Almighty God, the all-knowing God, the eternal God, decides intentionally and pur purposely not to bring up your sin into the relationship that you have with Him. That is grace. That is forgiveness. That is what we are called to do. And when we are unforgiven... What really we are saying is that we're better than God, that we know better than Him. And we don't. We do not know. Because you don't know what it meant for Him to see your sin, to see our sins being poured over His Son when He was hanging, bleeding out, nailed to that cross. You do not know 
But we do know that because of the forgiveness that we have found in him, we can relate to him, and our sin is not, no longer in front of us. You know what this means? Have you read the passage in Isaiah chapter 6? When the prophet is brought into the presence of the Lord, and he sees the throne, and he sees the robes, and he sees the temple and the caravans, and he sees the smokes, and he trembles in fear for his life. And what does he say? Woe of me. Because he doesn't say because my life has ended. He says because my existence is done. Because I am a man of filthy lips that dwells amongst people of filthy lips. He fell on his knees, forehead to the ground, to not see the one seated in the throne. You know where we are? In the same place. But not fearing for our lives. We are in that presence, filled with praise, filled with joy, filled with confidence. Let us approach with full confidence, says the author in Hebrews. We can go there where the prophet feared. We rejoice. Where the prophet dropped his knees, we raised our hands. Why? Because of forgiveness. So we are called to express the same sense of forgiveness in our relationships. We are not forgiven as close as what God has forgiven. Charles Spurgeon says, Do not think well of me, because I know where I've been. But think greatly of God, because I know what he has done. We do know what the Lord has done. He has forgiven us. He has canceled the debt of our sins. He has restored. He has redeemed. He has brought us near and forgiveness. All these characteristics are given to Christians to wear. These are the things that God uses to display the transformative power of the gospel. We walk like this, representing the culture of heaven. They asked me about the cultural shock coming from Chile to Australia. You don't live in huts. We don't live in huts. We have shopping malls over there. You have shopping malls over here. Your supermarkets look the same, looks the same to ours. Maybe the only weird thing you do is that you drive on the left, but I can, I can live with it. Because I'm not bound to the culture of, of Chile. I like it. I enjoy it. It makes me happy. The food, the music. But that's not where I belong. My culture has been changed. My culture is the culture of heaven. That's the culture I'm representing. That's the culture that I want to represent. 
So to avoid these virtues, to, to avoid them to go loose, we must tie them together, to bind them. And in order to keep these qualities together in harmony, love is a necessity. We will never enjoy true unity without love. Verse 14, and above all this, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Perfect harmony. Those who are musicians here will, will understand this. But there's, there's not a most beautiful sound than a perfect harmony. When those chords are paired together, a G chord by itself, that's nice. But a G chord with a D chord, that sounds pretty. But a G chord with a D chord and a C chord, that starts to sound beautiful. The perfect harmony is something that sounds good. That when you hear it, you do think of, ah. We will never enjoy true unity without love. There is no purpose for any of these qualities that we've seen if there's no love present. And it's not any type of love, that's for sure. It is the love of God. And the, the word, every time that the word love comes in the New Testament, the Greek word uses agape. And it's a very well-known uh, word in, in, in Christian circles. Agape, the Greek word to refer to this love. It is a different type of love. It's a love that it doesn't come from us. It's, it's a love that we can't produce ourselves. It's a love that is sacrificial, that is active, purposeful, that endures. Paul said in Romans chapter 13, verse 10, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. If not motivated by love, then it will be not acceptable before our God. R.C. Sproul, talking about love, said, In biblical categories, love functions more as a verb than as a noun. It is more concerned with doing than feeling. So you don't feel like loving your brother, your neighbor? Tough luck. Because <laughs> it's not about how you feel. Is what about you are called to do. The new man clothed with these new garments will cover them with three extra external parts. This is the peace of Christ, the word of Christ, and the name of Christ. These are our motivators. This is what drives us. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word of deed, do everything, everything, everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Peace. As we are in a state of peace, there's a, there's a contract that has been signed between man and God through Christ. 
Since we've been justified by faith, we have now peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And to, re- to retain that peace, thankfulness. The natural response to what God has done, thankfulness, will have an incredible effect in our relationship with others, infusing them with peace. I'm thankful for have you in my life. But this person brings so much trouble to me. Be thankful for that relationship and your life. Giving thanks in everything. And this is the truth we need to engrave in us. If you are God's child, your life is never, ever out of control. Yes, there are things that are beyond the reach of your control... Or my control, but that doesn't mean that my life, that your life is out of control. It is only when God looms hugely larger than anything you could ever face in this fallen world that your heart is able to experience peace even when you don't understand what's happening. And how do we get to the point of God looming largely than anything in our lives? Through His Word. It is when our hearts are overflowing with His words that we can experience that peace. The truth of His words are for us to flow and invade every aspect of our lives, controlling uh, controlling our thoughts, words, and actions, teaching and exhorting. This This is to impart and to warn others and ourselves of the consequences of their, our behavior. And this is not only an informational discipline, but also one that will produce in us an emotional response. Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. The people of God is a people that sings. We sing praises. We sing with our voices. We sing with our bodies. We sing with our souls. We sing with our lives. And it is only right that that song be heard Everywhere we go. That that song be heard by those around us. And to conclude, we are encouraged to live how it suits this risen life. How it's only appropriate for those who have been made new. For those who have been redeemed. To live for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To live according to His will and character. Paul tells the Corinthians. and And he encourages to do the same. And to every Christian... So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. How do we do this? How do I have relationships for the glory of God? How do I deal with my parenting? How am I to be a husband for the glory of God? How am I to be single for the glory of God? How am I to do my job for the glory of God? Giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Our Savior, our Redeemer, our King Jesus, reveal in His Word. I would like to end this sermon with this illustration or or this analogy. In Japanese culture, there is a form of art called kintsugi, which translates as golden joinery. It is the art of repairing broken pottery by mending the areas of breakage with lacquer dusted or mixed with powdered gold. It is a long process. It can take up to six months to repair it and finish. And the end result, instead of hiding the breakage, displaces 
to tell the story of the ceramic cup or bowl. And it's in the same way God is in the work of fixing us, mending what once was broken, the internal result of his redemptive work shining through in golden strokes. But one day, he has promised that he will give us a fully fixed body that will correspond within our souls. No more breakage. No more stories. Just a memory of what we were and who we are meant to be. The fullness of the work of God, the glorified body and soul that will enjoy and dwells with him forever. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 12 and 13 to finish. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 12 and 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. There's three. But the greatest of these is love. What are you wearing today? Let's put on Jesus. Lord, guide us to be more like you. To love more like you. To live more like you. Help us in our weaknesses. Manifest your power in our needs. Provide us with grateful hearts and fill us with song. We pray, we cry. You hear, you heal. In your name, Jesus. Amen.